mindfulness mode. We are all connected in this energy of this, this beautiful unfolding energy. Mindful Tribe, we're here to talk about topics that aren't often approached. Topics that are creative and rewarding to discuss. This is just going to be so uplifting, I think, as we talk about nature, we talk about the environment, we talk about flying above life's dangers. We are here today with Tezza Lord. Tezza, are you in mindfulness mode today? <laughs> well, you know, you call it mindfulness. I, I just call it being alive. <laughs> but I'm, I'm alive, I'm well. I'm uh, feeling incredible today. Thank you. That's and I hope fantastic. everybody who's listening feels the same. I hope so too, Tessa. Tessa, what does mindfulness mean to you then? Or being alive as you put it? Well, you know, I do a lot of uh, researching with different teachers and I did a lot of work early on with Eckhart Tolle and he doesn't like the word mindful, I gotta tell you. He says it makes the illusion of your mind is filled with stuff. And um, I got his point, and, but yet mindful is such a buzzword and people just, ah, yeah, mindful. Yeah. But I, I'm a pretty simple person. I, I don't have a lot of frilly um, covers of who I am, what you see is what you get. I'm a WYSIWYG kind of gal and, or person, I like to call myself a person rather than anything. Um, I, I like to, to use aware and awake rather than mindful. That's just my preference. Well, I like that being aware, being awake. And your website is tezalord.com, T-E-Z-A. L-O-R-D and Mindful Tribe, you can learn so much more about Teza there. But let's talk more about being aware and being awake. And when it comes to the ocean, I know that you have a tremendous connection with the ocean and what lives in it. Tell me when you were first aware of that connection and how it, how it impacted your life. Well, ever since a child, of course, I've been playing in the ocean. My parents were big lovers of the ocean, but I really became aware of how important it was to me as a teacher when I started to sail. I spent the entire 70s sailing the Caribbean, and I spent a lot of time on the prow of sailboats and cargo boats and mail boats and shipping boats and tow boats and tug boats and <laughs> you name it i've been on boats and when you're at the very bow of a boat and you're feeling the energy of of moving through the water doesn't matter if it's under wind or power and you're connected with this movement and you're far away from land the molecules of of the ocean become almost like dancing teachers. And there's an energy that just, I, I think it's more or less has to do with ionization. A lot of people feel that around the ocean, but it, when whenever the ocean water has, has been agitated and this experience I'm talking about, it's from plowing through, or a, a surfer could feel that, or um, somebody who's has a relationship diving, but there's a, a, a certain energy. And of course we are 70% water as my 
10-year-old grandson told me the other day. <laughs> I knew the percentage was really high. He said, we're 70%, you know. But so we are really connecting with our base formula, our base matrix, our, our chemistry is the same. And that's just in a chemical um, point of view. But when you start talking about energy and consciousness, the ocean has so much to teach us if we just allow ourselves to be open to what can an inanimate being such as water connect to us in our aware, awake, mindful state. And for me, it's about oneness. It's really feeling connected with not just all human beings, but everything this planet is and everything beyond the planet. And water is an integral part of that. So this happened early in life. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned that the environment is our 21st century religion. How can we embrace this in such a way that not only is it our religion, but it's, it's our life's work to preserve it and, and value it? Well, so many people these days are political junkies or sports junkies or fashion junkies or whatever they're junkie junkies of, and that is their religion. So by religion, I do not necessarily mean a God thing. I mean, what are you passionate about? Where do you put your energies? Where do you put your belief system? And in my world, my spiritual awakeness is so much more alive than the material part of my being. I mean, I have a body, yes. I have to feed it. I have to clothe it. I have to exercise it, and get it um, comfortable and away from COVID and all that stuff that we do. But yet the spiritual part of my life is, is eternal and everlasting. And, and the more we are aware and awake, we embrace that because it's true. We feel that every time we go into a mindfulness exercise, whether it's a deep meditation or just being present to the moment, there's this eternalness about us. So the earth is at a crisis. And I've known this ever since the 70s, because I used to work with earth scientists. I was a botanical illustrator in the late 60s, 60s and 70s. Uh, that was one of the first things I did as an artist. So I knew the earth was really in a dire strait in the 70s. And here we are 50 years later. And okay, rah, 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 there's this green movement. But you know, those of us who have been awake to the environment's crises have, have been working hard about trying to help people wake up to what Mother Earth needs. Well, we can't do that. We can't think of anybody else or anything else unless we ourselves have been awakened. And it starts with self-love, seeing this microcosm of the universe inside our own being. So if a person hasn't started with that, they're going to miss the boat about how the entire planet is part of us and we are part of it. And we fit into the scheme of the whole universe so intricately and, and so balanced in such a balanced way that if anything is disrupted in, in a very serious way, it will be serious. Yeah. <laughs> we will have consequences to pay, not just in our own personal life, but in the entire universe. And I think 
I'll be quite frank here because I don't like to play around with like, how do we get to these places in our mind? Well, I experienced witnessing a whole fleet of spaceships when I was a very young woman with two friends. We were surf casting on Nantucket Island, fishing at night. And I witnessed something that changed my life. And I knew that we are not alone. And of course, we're talking more and more about it in society. The Senate is getting ready to have judiciary committees uh, look into recent reportings. But this has been going on throughout probably history that we have had visitors and we are being watched. <laughs> and the, the universe is, is vast and we play a balanced role here. So right away, I'm talking about the cosmos, but let's keep it simple. Like keep it in my own beingness. Like my first responsibility is to maintain the balance and the loving care of this of this beautiful body that I have right now. And, and then once I feel comfortable with that, everything else ripples out of me and around me because I'm into the state of love. And that's catching. It's infectious. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated with what you're sharing. And could you give us more details? How old were you? What did you see? What was, what was this that impacted your life and changed your life so much at that point? Well, first of all, I want to start off by, by saying that I have verified this with the people who I was with that night, uh, which was in the 60s, like 1967, I believe it was. I'm, I can't remember the precise year. I'm pretty sure it was either 66 or 67. So I was not even 20. I'm, uh, I was born in 47. So I was either 19 or 20. And um and then I met another person when I was discussing this incident that happened to me. She happened to overhear me and she saw the same thing from the mainland, which was Rhode Island, that I was witnessing on the island of Nantucket, which is off the coast of Massachusetts. So what I saw was, <laughs> this may sound really bizarre, but it's what I saw and it, it changed my life. And this is what my belief system is based upon that I no longer have to be afraid because we are absolutely being watched in a friendly way. There was no threat, but there was a mothership. And by mothership, I mean, it was so far in the atmosphere that all I could see were the lights. So there was a big, strong light, steady and stationary. It disappeared. Like we, we started fishing about nine o'clock at night, all of a sudden by 10 o'clock, boom, the lights appeared. So the mothership, what I call the mothership, was right in the middle, way up in the atmosphere. On the top and the bottom of the mothership were what I call two lieutenant ships that were pulsating, going up and down in a vertical fashion that had dimmer lights. And you got the sense that they were right there to protect or be in close contact with this bigger entity. And then all throughout the Eastern seaboard, because I was in Massachusetts, but you could see it all the way up and down the Eastern seaboard were these small little zoom, 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 like <laughs> I'm hitting the mic, were um, like reconnaissance little ships. Now, of course I did not see the actual ships, but those many lights going in and out, um, I got the picture. <laughs> 
I didn't have to see a ship. And it stayed like that all night long until dawn came during this time. So these were hours and hours. And I just like, I was having a religious experience because I just felt that these were friendly entities. And I trusted that we were being part of a huge collective of intelligent beings. I mean, who knows what they looked like or what their ships looked like, but there was no threat. There was no feeling of, oh, wow, this is the end of the world or anything. No, it was a sensation of, oh, what an amazing privilege to see this and to know that there's nothing to fear about the world. Because up to that point, this, this was during the Vietnam era, right at the tail end of the Vietnam era. I was one of those people who was very, very, very against the war. Mm -hmm. I would travel to Washington to demonstrate. And I was quite angry about war and materialism. And why aren't people paying more attention to important things like helping other people instead of war? It just didn't make sense to me. No. This is before I left the States and went to the Caribbean for an entire decade. So what that experience of seeing the fleet of spaceships <laughs> that night did to me, it calmed my heart. Mm -hmm. It gave me hope. It completely dissolved the, the anger and the fear and the mistrust that I had in human condition and realized that we are part of something much bigger, much vaster. And it gave me not quite a mission because I still had some personal demons to work out in my own life. And I had I was not yet ready to surrender to being as open and awake as I as I am committed to being today. I had some resistance still. <laughs> right. Right. And did you talk to anyone about it at the time? Did you share this experience with others? And if you did, what was the response you received? Everybody's been so skeptical whenever I mention it. And so I've kept it as not as a secret. If I'm around people who are discussing similar in incidences, like, believe it or not, my mother, who has uh, been off the planet now for a few years, she was a UFO um, aficionado because something happened when I was a young girl and there was a, an event where she witnessed a UFO <laughs> in Illinois. This is right outside of Chicago. This sounds so funny, but it's, uh, she did not tell her children. She, there were two of us who were in the house at the time because she didn't want to scare us, but she saw this big ship hovering and she knew right away it was ufo because she was a reporter at the time mm -hmm. and there were a lot of sightings in um so this was the early no late 50s uh, at, or early 60s at the most like 58 59 she called my father out both these people are as straight as can be she calls my father out and says you know and they're both standing there looking at what the phenomena was that they recounted to us later when we became much more mature. And um, that incident just happened to be something that caused a lifelong interest in my mother. So she went to conventions and whatnot. Now, she, she 
has heard many different stories and she heard mine and she just said, hmm, yeah. So my mother was pr practically the only one who really understood. But basically I've kept it to myself except for rare occasions. And now people are talking about it more. I even wrote about it on Medium, which is a, a place where you can do some writing, but no, not, to, not that many people find things unless they're searching for them. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. You're, like I said before, a writer and you've written some wonderful works. Mindful Tribe, I'm just going to cut in here. Before I ask Teza about her most recent book, I just want to ask you a question. Are you experiencing anxiety? Are you feeling blocked? Are you feeling as though you're, you're just frozen and not able to move forward? You know what? I work with people like this a lot. People just like you who for one reason or another, maybe you're stuck. Maybe there's an aspect of your life that is not working right now for you. Well, as you know, I coach a lot of people and I use hypnosis. And I've just finished with a client and I do have an opening. Maybe that opening is meant to be for you. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and we'll jump on a Zoom call and just put Teza's name in that subject line and we'll jump on a call, T-E-Z-A. And right now, back to the question I have for Teza about her most recent book. You're, you've written four books. Your most recent one is Hybrid Vigor, which I'm enjoying right now. Tell me about Hybrid Vigor and, and tell me what you're hoping the reader will, will get out of this. Well, hybrid vigor is a biological term. Anybody who's studied biology knows it. And it basically means that you take two specimens of the same species. You know, one might have certain qualities that you want, like to be uh, strong and impervious to disease. To disease. And then the, you take the other one uh, that is similarly strong and impervious to disease, and you breed them. And they're offspring is called hybrid vigor. So they have this genetically encoded in them just because of natural selection. And my book has the premise of we, each one of us people, human beings, can rebirth ourselves anytime just by thinking to be more aware, to be more open, and to rebirth ourselves as a newer, higher version, more open to things that Previously, people have been closed to, and this is our own hybrid vigorness. So I invite people by using animals to, to be more or less guides or what they call totems in the Native American tradition to be the spirit guide. I'll take animal by animal and show that we are animals. We humans are animals. So many people forget that. So we have more in common with wild animals and even trees. We have more DNA in common than most people know about. So animal by animal, I, I take personal experiences that have happened to me. And what have I learned from these cousins of mine, these animals? And the book starts off with me calling in a pod of dolphins, just by mentally putting out the invitation. And they come. 
Yeah, it is so moving to read that and to to just experience how you're able to communicate with all these animals, unspoken communication. And I was just going to ask you what you've learned from the great blue heron. That was later on in the book. Tell us about that experience. Right. Well, the great blue heron is one of my totems. I have a totem for the sea, which is the dolphin, a totem for the land, which is bear, and a totem for the air, which is the great blue heron. And as I say in the book, Hybrid Vigor, the great blue heron spends a lot of time alone. And they are really incredibly strong when there's wind coming, when there's adversity. I've seen many of them just standing on one foot, one leg, with their little heads pointed right into a very strong force wind. And they'll just go in rhythm with the wind and not be blown away and not be knocked over. And it's almost like they enjoy being tested. Mm. Um, so the solidarity I, of, of, of the great blue heron, I relate to. But I also know that they travel a long distance. I've seen them roosting in the Caribbean. I know they migrate all the way up to Canada, your, your territory. And they're magical birds. Do you, do you see them much, Bruce, where you live? I've seen them, yes. Yeah, sometimes yeah. we see them in the wetlands, you know, and in the areas when we go on hikes. And it's, it's a wonderful experience to see them. It really is. Tell mm -hmm. us about the bear and your connection with the bear. Well, the bear is, I was very surprised when I found out that intuitively I am a bear of the bear clan, they say, because before I did this work um, in preparation for doing a, a Native American sweat, you have to more or less go through a lot of purification rituals in order to come to the place where you can be allowed to do an, a Native American sweat. So you have to identify who you are and what you need to get rid of and what are, what are we doing this for? You know, set an intention for a sweat. And during a meditation, we were asked to invite an animal to come to us that is our animal, our totem. And the bear appeared and I was like, what? What do I have to do with a bear? So it gave me cause for reflection. And I've never encountered a bear uh, up close and personal. I, I was in Glacier Park and I've seen them from a distance and you do not want to get close to those grizzlies. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and I've been close to very small black bears that we have here in Florida. Which right. are, you know, they can cause some damage. Sure they can. They they have been known to do so, a lot of destruction. Um, but metaphorically, what a bear means to me spiritually as a totem, as a guide, is it's very protective. It is it is more than loyal. It would kill for its loyalty. Oh, yeah. And and I've always identified myself as being a warrior-like spiritual person. I'm not one of these people who sits in a lotus and in a cave all day. I believe that the world is too much in in its problem stage for us to, to just go into our, oh, I'm fine, I'm okay. But once we get into that place where we know that we are okay because we, we have this gift of love, then it's our duty to protect and especially the earth to, to go out and 
to do whatever we can to be loyal, loyal stewards of the earth. One of your childhood dreams was to fly above life's dangers. And you said by indiscriminately sowing positive thought seeds. What a beautiful image. Can you tell us more about this? Was this a recurring dream that you had as a young child? Yes, it was. Absolutely. I know a lot of people, even as adults, dream about flying. Yes. My husband does. But I haven't had a dream about flying since I was a child. But when I was a child, it was very, very common for me to just be able to, you know, motion with my arms. I didn't have wings, but I could just get elevate myself enough so that I was just above a crowd of pursuing angry people. And I know what the sensation is like to be out of reach of danger, but yet not so far out there that I'm completely removed from the situation. I can relate to the problems that are causing people to be irate and, and angry, but I can detach by elevating myself rather than just disappearing. And uh, it's something I've painted quite often as, a, as an artist. And the image of detaching is very important in the awakened, mindful world. Because the more mindful we get, the more awake we are, we are barraged by the sensation of this is really a sad thing for the earth to be so toxic. And uh, right now there's this terrible war in Ukraine. And there's a lot of stuff that we really need to send our spiritual energies for, you know, to influence Putin's mind, for instance, help him to relax and open up to love and not be a scared little bully boy, mm -hmm. you know, which is the way he's acting. So flying today, I don't have to dream about it. I can, I can think about it in my mind so easily because of the sensation being so, so familiar to me. And I love to paint about it. Well, and your paintings are beautiful. I'm seeing a couple of them behind you. Yeah, and uh, you. yeah, just absolutely moving. And you said that, that your paintings are influenced by your experience in dance. Can you share a little bit about dance and what that meant to you in your life and still means to you? Sure. Well, I really connect with Picasso. because A lot of people don't realize when they see his cubism all broken up and crazy that he was absolutely a perfect um, realist when he was a young student. He could copy anything, and I'm that kind of draftsman. I, I can realistically copy anything. But when, when a person like myself, when you get to that place where you can achieve reality with ease, then you say, okay, what's next? The real point of, of true art, I believe, and whether it's writing or music or dance, is to always do something original, not to be derivative. But of course, to get there, you have to study everybody's way of having approached this creative mode, which is the highest of the spiritual um, states, I believe, when you're truly creative. So today, I, I use the image of movement as energy. And I always paint people in their spirit bodies, which means no clothes, not because it's um, sensual or pornographic, but because these are our e egoless states without clothes, without race, 
without identity. And and it's a tricky thing because if you start putting skin on people, <laughs> you know, well, what color you make it, you could be called this or that. So I try to stick to blue because <laughs> blue to me is the spiritual color. Uh, although sometimes I've, I've even experimented doing works of of art with no skin on the people. And that's really an interesting anatomical exercise. And it, it um, it's, it's kind of scary, though. I don't like to do that because I think art should be with a message, but it also should be very appealing. And unfortunately, in today's world, there's a lot of art that is painted very beautifully. But if you really look at the subject matter, it's gross. It's debauched or it's unnecessary. It's, it, it goes too far into the negative of life. So for me, the challenge is how do you paint something that has appeal, not just beauty for beauty's sake, but, but have a message that helps uplift my fellow humans, because that's my role as an artist, and, and yet do it in a way that's appealing to people. Yeah, I, I love that. I really do. I want to ask you about the topic of bullying because I've worked in that field mm -hmm. for a long time. Do you have a story about bullying, perhaps in your life, where mindfulness would have made a difference? Well, one of my books, my first uh, nonfiction narrative, it's called In the Eye, is all about how I taught girls who are in prison because of various and sundry reasons. Most of them are gang girls and most of them are drug addicts that are no longer able to do their party because they got caught. And there's a lot of bullying in prison. And so, of course, I, I have experienced things outside of prison myself, but I want to talk about the way it, it is inside of a prison because these juvenile detention places, they need they need yoga, they need meditation, they need teachers and volunteer people like myself to come in to show these young people that the highest state, the, the, where there's the most fun is when you're totally in the state of love. And most of these kids don't know that. They didn't have good role models. Mm -hmm. Most of them had terrible parenting most of their parents are either in jail or they're drug addicts. So they're out there on their own. And it's just like a dog eat dog world. It's a jungle. They, and when kids are left alone, a lot of times they abuse each other. So it's, it's whoever can be the meanest and the, the most violent or the loudest. And so I took it upon myself to teach these girls to share with them more than teach, because I really wanted to show them that, they're exactly the same way that I was, but they got caught sooner. That's the way I always start the class. I'll say, you got caught sooner in life. I got caught eventually because I did spend some time in prison. That's part of my story. Yes. That'll come out in later books, not the ones that I have been writing so far. And when you really relate to kids, even bullies on the same level, like, hey, I understand what your problem is because you I'm the same as you but but it ends up with you in prison and it ended up with me in prison so let's talk about how we don't have to be in prison anymore and it starts with learning to love ourselves because if we don't love ourselves we cannot love anybody else you absolutely cannot 
You can't just take a bully and say, okay, you've got to start loving your fellow man. Well, they won't understand that at all. No. They have to start with learning about self-love. And to me, that is the challenge of being a, an artist of the 21st century and writer, because to me, they're, they're the same thing, whether, whether I'm writing or arting, I'm an artist. And how do we spread the mission that love is the thing that's going to change this world? It's not easy, is it? It's but but way to go for the work you're doing and putting into the world to help spread this message. That's wonderful. Now, as we move forward in the interview, Teza, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Oh, my gosh. One person. <laughs> That's really hard to say because I have, I, I was a guru junkie and I worked with many Eastern yogic teachers. So I will not say one specific, but I will say that the guru disciple relationship, which is a spiritual commitment that you make with a teacher is, is so important in my story. And I couldn't have been the person I am today without having surrendered my ego to a teacher. And so it was not a book. It was not a workshop. It was a day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-to-decade relationship where you surrendered your ego. Very good. Let's talk about emotions and how you feel your emotions not so much have been affected, but the way you deal with your emotions, how that has changed through the use of mindfulness. Oh my gosh, well, I was a basket case before. Who were you? I, I was a total, <laughs> I was either crying over commercials for toilet paper or, or ready to pick up a machine gun out of anger of the banks, you know. So my emotions have become what we call in yoga equipoise, and the Buddhists call the middle way. And one of the things I'm so grateful for is that I now have, I would not say control over my emotions because emotions are important teachers. They show us what we need to do with our life. But I'm now able to be productive and I'm not a slave of my emotions. So when I feel an emotion, I know that's where I'm supposed to go. You know, a good, a good passionate emotion. Yes. Let's talk about breathing, Teza. What comments do you have for our listeners about breathing? Well, breath is the connection between our, our unconscious self and our being able to be awake. And so the more conscious we are of each breath we take, the more awake and, and aware and mindful we are. So, of course, if, if, if we're not ever aware of breathing, then we are not a very mindful or awakened person. And literally, you can be aware of every single breath you take. And that's a lovely thing instead of having obsessive compulsive thinking to have some kind of steadiness, which is almost like I, I, I use the analogy of, of saddling onto a horse and the, the breath is a horse. And you ride your breath and you're riding it. And it takes you to amazing places 
deep within your own being when you have decided not to be afraid of it, to be aware of it, and to work with it. I really love that image, Tessa, that image of riding the horse and just embracing it and being part of it. That's really yeah. powerful. And I want to ask you about a book. You know, I'm enjoying, like I mentioned, your book, Hybrid Vigor, and uh, you've written other books too. Are there any other books that you would recommend to our listeners that are related to mindfulness? Well, all my books are, and I love my books. So I, I don't want to be a self-promoter, but why should I talk about other people's books when I have studied all my life to get to this place? So we've already mentioned two of the books. So Zen Love is a story of, that I wrote about how we can spiritualize our own family. Because once we learn that, that we can do that in our own family, then we realize that all of humanity is one big blended global family. And that's not a very far step to take so it's the story step by step of how to start because i was a step parent coming into a very dysfunctional broken family of how i spiritualized this experience and everybody benefited including myself <laughs> yeah i'm looking forward to reading your other books and some of your books have some of your artwork in them isn't that true they all do. They all do. Uh, okay. There's one art book that starts off with my manifesto, which is a pure art book, a coffee table art book, full color. That's called We Are One. And it's a beautiful book. A lot of people use as uh, a daily meditation because each page turn is a new idea. That's a visual trip. And there's just a little bit of prose to help somebody dive into what the image is really about. And then the other books are nonfiction narratives, which they're all text, but I always illustrate with 12 black and white drawings just because I love to illustrate what my mind is going into with words. And that's it, it's often quite surprising to see how I interpret it in a drawing. It blows my mind. I like to do it myself. Right. So you're never quite sure what's going to come out, I imagine. No. No, and, and the, the blank slate effect of being an artist is the way I operate. I allow myself to be a channel, just like when we get into the mindfulness mode. We don't have any projection about how it's supposed to be, how it, meaning this minute, and our relationships with different things. It just happens, you know, because life is a serendipitous journey. We can't predict how it's going to be. And when I approach uh, a piece of art, especially, I just say, wow, I'm going to open myself up as a channel and just see where we go. Thank you for sharing all that. And Teza, you have a podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, my husband and I, my darling husband, to whom I've been married for 30 years, which in itself is a miracle, because um, I got married in my mid-40s. And up to that point, I was a committed world bachelor, just traveler. I mean, I love just being different places, but his name is Carter Lord. And together we are the Z Lord podcast. So we started podcasting three years ago before the pandemic, because we were on a six month camping journey. And I started it. I said, we're going to share with the world 
about each new campsite, each new state, each new country, because we were up in Canada and we went to the western part of the, the states and we ended up in Texas. And then when we came home in time for the pandemic to begin, I said, well, we're going to now go into the inner journey. So we continued podcasting about inner exploration. And to this day, we do a weekly um, discussion. We don't have guests because our entire outfit of technology is based on an iPhone. Okay, yes. <laughs> Where we record our conversations, even if we're in the middle of a desert. Uh-huh. Or like, like a couple of weeks ago, we were camping in the Chiricahua Mountains in Arizona. We were, we were just at campsite and we did our recording for a podcast. Wow, it's incredible <laughs> what we can do with technology that we can carry in our pocket now. It is, it is. It's oh, that's, phenomenal. That's beautiful. And again, your website is tezalord.com, T E Z A L O R D. And your podcast is Z Lord podcast. Mm -hmm. And as we wrap up the interview, I want to ask if you can just share some words of wisdom with someone who may be listening today, feeling that they need to be more grounded, feeling that they would love to use mindfulness to be more centered. What would your words of advice be to that listener? Well, I put up the perfect video on my YouTube channel just about this the other day. I tried to do a new, what I call mind stiller, which is to quiet the obsessive compulsive thinking, the monkey mind, and bring ourselves into breath awareness. And uh, the, the one I did this week is called the waterfall of life and learning something new about the fact that we are not alone. We are all connected in this energy of this, this beautiful unfolding energy that another great teacher, Suzuki Roshi, talked about in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So that video and, and many other videos that I put up on my YouTube channel are very useful pe for people who perhaps need help. And so they, they use a guided, um, you know, influence just mm -hmm. to get you there. Sure. And then you, you can just do it on your own. But it does help to have guidance at the beginning. I know I certainly worked with great teachers for decades. Tezza, it's been a wonderful honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much. Okay. All the best to you. Bye now. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Mindful Tribe, thanks so much for tuning in to the interview with Tezza today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, I mentioned halfway through the interview about you. I was talking to you, whether you're experiencing anxiety or maybe you're experiencing problems with an addiction or problems moving forward. You're stuck. You're having challenges. You know what? You're listening to this for a reason. And the reason may be to jump on a call so that we can talk more about this and talk about how hypnosis can work for you to help you through these challenges. Because you know what? Hypnosis is one of the quickest ways to get in there and deal with whatever's going on in your subconscious mind and help you frame that in a different way. And it is something that has really helped 
a lot of my other clients. I have so many testimonials that I can share with you. You could be the next person. You could be the next person to feel like, wow, I've, I was there, but now I've moved forward. I was experiencing challenges, but my life now just speaks to me and feels great. So if you feel that, send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Put Tezza in the subject line, T-E-Z-A, and I'll notice that email right away. And we will jump on a 30 to 40 minute Zoom call and we'll talk about what can, you know, what can work for you, what will help you in your life. We'll talk about ways that you can move forward ways that you can achieve this feeling of worth, this feeling of value so that you can move forward in your life. I look forward to hearing from you. And thanks again for listening to the episode and take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.